Well, I, I ran across a story this week of a man who was walking along uh, just on a casual, leisurely walk in his own neighborhood when he came across death. And he was so shocked and surprised to see death, and not only to see death, but to see the response of death in that moment, because death was shocked and surprised at the same time. And they passed each other without saying a word or giving a second thought. And the shock was so deep in this man that he went back to his home and he contacted a wise friend that he looked to for advice and for wisdom and direction and instruction. And he said, I just had an encounter with death. What should I do? Well, the wise man gave his best advice. He said, you need to flee death. You need to elude death as fast as you can. And so he said, I suggest that you leave tomorrow and you get out of this town because death is coming for you tomorrow. And so the man thought, this is good wisdom. I need to elude death. And so he went as fast and as far as he could. And he got to a a far off city and he got to that place. And he thought in that moment, I have eluded death. And so he took a big sigh of relief and just let out his breath. And in that moment, death tapped him on the shoulder and said, I have come for you. And the man was shocked in this moment because he said, he said to himself, but I just saw you yesterday in my hometown and I'm surprised to see you here in this place. And death said, yes, I'm shocked to see you as well because I was told yesterday to come to this town to find you. And so there it is, like death comes for every one of us and there is no eluding it. Every, each and every one of us have an appointment with death. And it's that one appointment that none of us will ever be late for. Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) We're going to talk about death today, but I think what we're going to talk about more than death is we're going to talk about the comfort and the hope of eternity as we think about death that is coming for us. In fact, Woody Allen, the, uh, the, the, the movie director and the actor, he once said this, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. First Thessalonians, we're going to be in this book this morning as we're traveling through this whole book, talking about living unshakable lives. And Paul was writing to the Christians in Thessalonica, and they were struggling to understand death. They were struggling to understand eternity, and they were struggling to understand the return of Christ. And specifically, they were starting to lose their hope because Paul had told them just a year or so earlier as he planted and pastored this church in Thessalonica that Jesus would be returning. And so they were expecting the imminent return of Christ, and they were beginning to fear that Jesus was either not coming back, or they were fearing that their loved ones who were now passing away were not going to be gathered up on that great and glorious day when Jesus would return. There was a lot of confusion, and they wondered what was going to happen to the bodies of those who had passed away in their waiting for Jesus to return. So they were grieving their losses and they were losing hope in their doctrinal differences or in their doctrinal ignorance, I should say. And so Paul writes this passage of scripture in chapter four to kind of um, confront their growing doubt over the future, over death and their teaching um, on eternity. And so he wanted to give them a glimpse of hope. He wanted to provide them with hope And folks, I want to let you know this morning, if you don't know this already, there can be hope found in death. You know, I've preached a lot of 
funerals over the years. Over the last 24, 25 years, I've preached uh, multiple funerals, many of them of loved ones that uh, are very near and dear to me in my own family. But just under two years ago, I preached the funeral of a distant cousin of mine. And uh, I was asked to preach his funeral. And as I, as I met with the family, as I started talking with his father and his brother and some of the other people in the family, um, it was very clear and it was very apparent that there was no evidence of salvation. There was no fruit of the Spirit. There was not even a profession of faith at any point in his life. And I got to tell you, it's a very difficult and sensitive thing to deliver a word of truth and a word of hope at a funeral where there is no evidence of salvation. There were a lot of people that were there on parts of the family, uh, I guess parts of my family, that didn't know Jesus Christ. And it was one of the most difficult funerals I'd ever preached because there was not a lot of hope. There was a lot of confusion of what happened to my cousin? Where is he right now? All of these things. So hope was hard to find, even though I did my very best to deliver a message of hope. On the flip side, one of the most magnificent worship services I have ever been a part of was the memorial service of my father-in-law, Lou. Uh, I got a chance to uh, preach his, his funeral, and it was down in Texas, and, and Lou was a man of God, and he, uh, it was a glorious celebration that we had together. We had a worship band, and we sang praise music, and we shared testimonies, and there were memories that were shared, and there was a lot of laughter. There was a lot of tears, and it was hope-filled, and it was just a really good time of remembering all these things that my father-in-law was to the rest of the family and to the pastors and the, the congregants that were in that service. And as we said our goodbyes, it was a comforting goodbye because we knew that Lou was a man of faith. We knew that he had pastored people for over 30 years and he had delivered the message of Jesus to literally thousands and thousands of people. He was a man of God and the crowd of believers that were in that place, they trusted that Lou had not only run his race, but that he had realized his prize. And that was a a glorious time where the, the message of hope was delivered. Folks, you want to know the distinguishing mark between a Christian and a non-Christian funeral? It's the hope that is found in truth. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to talk about this because Paul is writing this portion of the letter to convey truth to the, to the, to the baby Christians in Thessalonica. See, the Thessalonians thought that Jesus' return was imminent. And they, some of them had quit their jobs. They thought Jesus is coming any day now. Like literally, it could be tomorrow. Literally, it might be next week. And so what worth and what use is there in me working? Because Jesus is returning. And so some of them had quit their jobs. Others had forsaken their responsibilities. They were awaiting Christ's arrival. They didn't think that they would be facing the reality of death because Jesus was coming back any day now. And so you can imagine their doubts that began to creep in, into their faith, into their walk with the Lord, and the fears that came when Jesus hadn't come back over a year later after Paul had told them that he was coming. So they had started to see their friends and their family and their loved ones had started to pass along. They had passed on into death and they were confused. And so Paul pens for them some words of hope. 
And we all need a dose of hope in our life, don't we? In this world that is desperate, that this world that is living in despair, in this world that feels upside down, we need words of comfort. We need words of hope. And so as we're going to read in chapter 4, verses 13 and 18 through 18 this morning, we're going to see that we can find hope for eternity and urgency for today. Um, as, as we look at this text. And so the first word of hope is this. Point number one this morning is that there is a reality and there is also a revelation. You see, we have God's word to us on this matter, on this subject. In fact, in fact, 1 Thessalonians 4, I want to start in verse 13 and then I want to read the first part of verse 15 as well. This is Paul speaking words of hope, words of comfort to the Thessalonians who were starting to waver in the strength of their faith. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have no hope. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. So this is Paul talking to this church. He's telling them, he's writing to them, we have a word of hope. We have a message from God. We have the truth of God. And I think of the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that we all wrestle in some ways with death. We, we wrestle with the future. We, we wrestle with eternity. We wrestle with the things that we don't know and the things that our simple minds can't comprehend. The Th- and the Thessalonians in this moment, they're struggling with the reality of death because they were uninformed. I would even dare say that they were misinformed because if we look over just a page or two over to second Thessalonians, Paul is writing another letter to them in chapter two. And this is what he says. He's saying to this church later on, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken. We're talking about living unshakable lives. He says, We ask you not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seemingly to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And so what we know is that during this time, when Paul is writing to the church of Thessalonica, he's trying to counter the misinformation that is being given to them. There were Paul posers. I like to call them Paul posers. They were, they were false teachers that were creeping into the church, and they were going so far as to write letters to this church saying that they were Paul when they actually weren't. And they were misinforming, they were misleading the church of God. And Paul was saying in this moment, he's saying, don't be shaken by the false teachings. You need to understand what God is revealing to you. Folks, we, we fear what we don't understand, don't we? You know, I, I have a pretty healthy fear of snakes. Anybody like fear snakes? like to the core of your being, like I want nothing to do with them. My wife called me about 10 years ago when we lived in Durango, Colorado. We had a, what's called a bull snake in like in the front section of our house. It was kind of like a green room that was built on, um, built onto the front of our house. And she, she called me in a panic telling me about this bull snake that was in like in the house. And uh, this bull snake, I came home, it was probably about five or six feet long. It was massive. And I got to be honest with you, I'm really glad I wasn't home when that thing kind of surfaced because um, I didn't really want to take care of it either. And so I, I, uh, it kind of just left the house and it, you know, we didn't have to do anything with it. But I have a really healthy fear of snakes. Now, I have a friend, his name is Andy. And Andy is a scientist. He's a really smart guy. And he has a fascination with snakes. 
And he began to tell me last weekend, he said, Chris, I have a collection of snakes and I use them for educational purposes. I use them for breeding so that I can help kind of like protect threatened species. And he wouldn't go so far as to tell me how many snakes he has, but he says they're in my basement and they're all locked up in cages. And the best I could deduce from what he was telling me is he had at least 40 snakes in his basement. He sent me a couple of pictures this week. He said, Chris, I'd be happy to bring one in and show it to the congregation. I said, the Holy Spirit of God right now inside of me is saying, no, don't do it. Like, we don't need your snakes here in this place. Um, but he said, Chris, people have a, like, they have a misunderstanding of snakes, and so they fear them because they don't understand them. He said, there's really nothing to fear with the snakes that I have. The only thing to fear is that if I forget to lock one of the lids, and then they get out. And then they get into my house and then my wife panics and then they have babies because I breed them. And then we have snakes all over the house. Other than that, there's really nothing to fear. He's like, it's not a big deal. I'm like, I'm good. I, I, I readily admit I do not understand snakes. And so this is like a fear that I am okay with. So we have a healthy fear. We have a fear of things that we don't understand because we don't have proper education. You know, when it comes to death, when it comes to this idea and this conversation of death, we fear death because we sometimes don't have not just the proper education, but the proper theology. And so right teaching, folks, leads to right believing, and right believing leads to right living. And Paul, as we know, had a really healthy relationship with the idea of death. In fact, he didn't even fear it. He said in the New Testament, he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He admitted that For him, as he approached death, as he looked at death, as he considered it in his life, it was actually something to be excited about, something to be pursued. He said to die is gain. And so Paul lived with a boldness in the face of his struggle because of what he believed about God's word. We have a reality that death is coming for all of us. But we also have a revelation that tells us the truth about eternity. And we don't have to fear this death. And folks, it saddens me how many Christians, how many Christians live in fear of death because the riches of this world and the temporary pleasures of this place are more important to them than the riches that are being stored up in glory. There are a lot of Christians that have grown familiar with this world and they don't look forward to heaven. They look at it as something to dread because they've become so comfortable here that they actually fear death and they don't look forward to necessarily seeing Jesus because they love it on this planet. In fact, Psalm chapter 19, when it talks about truth, when we talk about the truth of God's word and how it brings us comfort, I want you to understand what the scripture says about the law of the Lord or the word of God. In verse seven of Psalm 19, it says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Do you see what happens when we understand God's word? When we understand his revelation to us, it revives our soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens our eyes. The word of God in our lives when we understand it is not a burden. It is not a weight that we have to carry around. The word of God makes us lighter. It makes our journey easier when we face it and when we know it. So when you know God's word revealed, it doesn't weigh you down, it lightens your load. And at death, 
We don't grieve like those with no hope. As Christians, we comfort in God's revealed word to us. And what does it say about the future? My second point is this. There's not only a reality and a revelation, there's a return and a resurrection. There's a return and a resurrection because Christ is coming again and the dead and Christ will rise. You know, this early church, specifically this church in in Thessalonica, was heavily persecuted. There was a tremendous amount of pressure upon Christians for living out their faith, for identifying as followers of Jesus, for proclaiming that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. To live in the Roman Empire and the known world at that time, and to be that exclusive in your belief and in your religion and in your faith was a very, very... um powerful thing, and people didn't respond kindly to it. In fact, because of people standing for Christ and proclaiming him to be, to be the way, truth, and life, many of them would face family separation. Some of them lost homes or employment. Many of them were beaten. Maybe they were flogged. They were tortured. Some of them were crucified, maybe crucified upside down. And even in drastic measures, in extreme situations, some of them were beheaded. It was a really difficult thing to live for Christ 2,000 years ago in the city of Thessalonica. And so in the midst of all of their suffering, in the midst of all of these Christians' um, trials and hardships, they would comfort one another by proclaiming one word, Maranatha. Maranatha, which means our Lord is coming soon. This was the hope that they would cling to in their hardships, that the Lord would return for them. And I believe, folks, that the Lord is coming soon. We sang that song, soon and very soon. We are going to see the king. I believe he's coming again. And Paul, no doubt, taught this church in Thessalonica that Jesus was coming again. But they were starting to get worried about their loved ones because they didn't understand what was going to happen to them. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to read verses 14 to 16 specifically, where it says this. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So Christians believe that death is not a permanent end, that the grave is not the end of our existence. In fact, in this passage of scripture, Paul uses the word asleep three different times because he wants to convey that those who have passed on are not dead, they are just sleeping, that their souls have gone to be with the Lord, but their bodies lay at rest. Folks, there is no such thing as annihilation. There is no such thing as soul sleep. When our bodies pass on, when we breathe our last, they go into a state of waiting for God's return as Christians. Think about it. When you were a little kid, you probably hated the idea of a nap, didn't you? Think about your kids. When you told them when they were younger, think about it when you told them that they had to take a nap. Did they ever do it like voluntarily? Did they ever look forward to it? Absolutely not. They didn't want to take a nap and they almost looked at a nap as if it was a punishment. Like, why, mommy, are you telling me I have to go to sleep? What did I do wrong? Why are you punishing me? Why, mommy, why do I have to take a nap? As you grow older, 
into your adult years, your older years, you don't look at naps quite the same way, do you? In fact, a nap is a gift from God. Is there really anything better than a Sunday afternoon siesta? Like literally, I wake up on Sunday morning sometimes thinking, oh, I get to take a nap today. Like, Anybody else feel the same way? I get to take a nap today. This is so exciting. Why do, we, why do we change our perspective on napping? Because we understand that naps are temporary. We understand that, yes, we will go to sleep, but we will reawaken, Lord willing, and it's only temporary, and we're not missing out on this world. We're not missing out on life. We don't have to fear death like we don't have to fear taking a nap because Christ has overcome death and the grave. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Folks, I long for that place that I call home. This world feels strange to me. It feels unfamiliar. And the more it turns from God's ways, the more it feels unfamiliar. And when Christ returns, man, he is going to bring believers who have passed on back with him. And when he comes in the cloud, the Bible tells us that there is going to be a cry of command. There's going to be the voice of an archangel, and there is going to be the sound of a trumpet. And those are the three sounds that I cannot wait to hear. I look forward to those three sounds more than any other in my entire life. See, in the Bible, when you think about the the, the blowing of a trumpet or the sound of a trumpet like we read in this text, in the Bible, the sounding of a trumpet signified the announcement of three different things. It would signify that armies were going into battle. It would announce war. It would also announce the arrival of a dignitary. Or it would announce a great and long journey. And so I think when, when we think about this trumpet that is going to sound in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's going to announce the arrival of the King of Kings and the fact that we as Christians are going to go on a great journey. We're going to be caught up into the air with him to be with the Lord forever. You know, the older I get, the more of this world that I see, the more that I experience, the more that I realize it kind of leaves me empty. And like I said just a couple seconds ago, like it just doesn't, this world doesn't feel familiar to me anymore. And so I long for that day when Jesus returns. In fact, I've gotten so excited. I've, I've longed for it so much over the last few years that I actually have circled on my calendar every year that Jewish high holiday called Rosh Hashanah the Feast of Trumpets. I look forward to it every year because it it reminds me that my King, my Lord, is coming soon. In fact, this year I got so excited about the Feast of Trumpets on September 25th that I actually went over to my buddy John's house and he has a shofar. And his shofar is not quite as big as this one, but this is a shofar. This is a ram's horn. This is the kind of horn that they would have blown in, in the Bible times. And they would blow this thing out and they would, on the Feast of Trumpets or on Rosh Hashanah, they would blow this throughout the day and it would be a reminder that they are ready for the coming of their king, that Jesus was coming. And so I went over to John's house and I got to blow his little shofar and it was actually really pathetic. There is a skill that goes into blowing one of these things. So I'm not going to blow on this one because... It'll either be really embarrassing or it might blow out your hearing aids. I'm not really sure. But this is a shofar. And so I got to go to his house and I got to blow it. And it was my way of saying, Maranatha, my king is coming soon. My Lord is coming again. And I am ready, Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know, cemeteries are not typically inviting places. It's not the place that you would want to go and have a picnic, right? But man, when that day comes 
when God blows that trumpet horn, when, when, when the dead in Christ rise out of their graves, I would love to be near a cemetery and be able to witness that. Like, what is that going to look like? The dead coming out of their graves back to life. The dead in Christ will shoot out of their graves with glorified bodies. And at our king's return, there will be a resurrection of the dead in Christ. So there's going to be uh, a, rea- there's a reality, there's um, a realization, a revelation, there's a return and a resurrection, and then thirdly, there's a rapture and a reunion. Believers will be caught up in the air forever with the Lord. Let's look at verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord now, if you have any understanding of, of Greek language, you understand that the word rapture is actually not found in this text. The word rapture actually comes from a Latin word that is a translation of the Greek word that is used in this text called harpazo. And, and Paul used this word harpazo to emphasize that the church would be snatched up, that it would be taken away, that it would be taken suddenly, or it would be carried off. And you've heard about You've heard about this in the past in other portions of Scripture. In fact, Matthew chapter 29. I want to read Matthew 29 and find words of comfort and, and how it compares to, in context, to what Paul is saying right here um, in, in 1 Thessalonians. So Matthew chapter, um, sorry, I'm saying Matthew chapter 29. I mean verse chapter 24 because there's not 29 chapters in Matthew. Um, Matthew chapter 24 verse 39 is what I meant to say. It says this, and they were, um, actually, let me start in the second half of verse 39. So will, so will be the coming of the son of man. Then two will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. John chapter 14, another um, passage in the gospel of John. I want to read this verse to you as well. Um, Let me get there real quick. John chapter 14, we're going to read the first three verses. It says this, it says, this is Jesus saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Our bridegroom is coming again. Paul is in this moment, He's not trying to give us the complete, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he's not trying to give us like a complete Christian's guide to eschatology. He's basically telling this small church, this is what you need to know to live unshaken. That Jesus is coming again and there will be a rapture of the church and we will be caught up in the air if we are still alive and we remain. And I know that there's a lot of debate over this whole idea of rapture and the specific teachings of it. But here's what I want to tell you that the Bible wants us to know specifically. Even though we might debate specifics, this is what you need to know without a doubt that Jesus, number one, is coming again. That he is coming to receive his bride, the church. 
Number three, that the dead in Christ will not miss this event, that they will rise first. And then number four, when the groom snatches his bride away, there will be a glorious reunion with Christ. We should be encouraged by these words. These are the four things, the specifics about the rapture that we need to be reminded of because some of you might land in different places on this whole concept. You know, as we talk about this being comforting words, I got to tell you, when I was a child, this, this whole concept, this whole teaching of the rapture and Christians being snatched away um, was not exactly comforting to me. In fact, when I was like seven, maybe eight years old, um, my church had a New Year's Eve watch night party. I don't know if you've ever went to those watch night services where you have games and you have food and you just have fellowship all the way up until midnight. Well, my church had one of those watch night gatherings when I was a young child and they showed the movie A Thief in the Night. Any of you ever heard of that movie or seen that movie? So those of you who are familiar, you know what I'm talking about. A Thief in the Night, it was an evangelistic tool meant to dramatize one man's interpretation of biblical prophecy. And my church showed it on this during this watch night service. And I got to tell you, it did nothing to comfort me. Um, it didn't comfort me at all. They might, have been, they might as well have been showing like Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street because my little eight-year-old, seven-year-old self was not ready to, con- like, to understand and confront the idea that a thief might come and take away Christians. Like a thief in the night might come and take my parents away and I might be left behind and be left an orphan. It was anything but comforting to me. But now that I know salvation... Now that I know Jesus, now that my eternal destiny is secured and I understand God's word and his teaching on eternity, I look forward to his return. I look forward to him coming like a thief in the night. And my prayer is come quickly, Lord Jesus. Folks, the hope of Christ's return should bring us great comfort. When he takes us away, there will be a glorious reunion because the suffering that we endure in this life will all be transformed into eternal glory. Our reunion will be everlasting. The second part of verse 17 says this in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, and so we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with, with him. These are words of comfort to us. This was Paul trying to comfort them saying, just wait because there is hope. There is comfort in eternity Folks, one day we will see our Savior face to face to see the one, to see the one that died for me. I can only imagine what my response will be. I imagine I will fall at the feet of Jesus and worship him. To know that he died in my place so that I could have eternal life. What more could I do but worship him and just bow at his feet and cast my crowns at his feet? Because in that moment when we are reunited with our Savior, there will be no more tears. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more financial struggle, no more health issues, no more diagnoses, if that's a word, diagnoses, no more cancer, no more death, no more despair, no more feeling like the world is upside down. We will be reunited with our Savior. And not only that, but we will be reunited with those believers that we love who have gone on before us. And I know each and every one of you have suffered loss. And I know that you live with grief. And I know that you live with, hopefully, the hope of knowing that one day you will see that loved one again if they believed in Jesus Christ. Who is it that you long to see in eternity? 
I know you long to see Jesus. But that loved one who knew Jesus as Savior that has passed on before you, you will see them again in eternity. We know that that death is a great separator, but Jesus is a great reconciler. He will bring us back together. He will gather us together. And when we grow in our love for the Lord, we not only begin to look forward to his appearing, but we love the idea of his appearing. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 says this, Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. There is a crown of righteousness for those of us who long for and love his appearing. Do you long for it? Are you ready for it? Are you right with Jesus? Do you know him as as savior? Have you repented of your sin and given your life and surrendered it over to him to be the Lord of it? Because folks, death is a fact of life. There is no escaping it unless we are alive when Jesus returns. The Thessalonians, they were confused by all of this teaching. So Paul had to kind of straighten them out on it. But we don't have to be confused. We don't have to be uninformed. We don't have to be ignorant. The return of Christ is imminent. Are you ready? Do you know him? And then Paul goes on to say in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. This is encouraging stuff this morning. Yes, we may talk about death, but we can find comfort and encouragement in the midst of it. Folks, things may be bad right now. I know that many of you struggle. I know many of you live with loss and you live with grief and you live with pain and you live with heartache and you live with the memory of those that have gone before you and you miss them dearly. You're lonely. I know all of these things because I've talked to many of you. But take heart. Maranatha, our Lord is coming soon. Let's pray.